Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right. Welcome back, everybody. It is great to have you here. It's great to be back. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode. Today, we are going to be getting back into the letters. It may be a brief episode. I'm I'm kind of uh, up against a schedule here. So every once in a while, I get these like two-week periods of time or three-week periods of time where my schedule is just really up against a wall. And this would be one of those uh, one of those periods in time in question. So we'll see how uh, how much time I can put into this one to get it done. Because basically, I've got to record, edit, and upload all in the same day. This is going to be uh, it's going to be a long day. I've also got some good episodes. I've I've been planning episodes all week long too. Just kind of working on some stuff that's going to be coming up within the next five episode time span. I've got a, at least a couple of good ones I think coming up that are uh, going to be one of them's going one of them's going to be a little bit different. Actually, honestly, a couple of them going to be a little bit different than what we usually do. Something to look forward to. But uh, on this episode, what I want to get started off with is uh, a review. A member of the study group, Jared, had left another comment on Apple Podcasts that I wanted to get to. And I'll read this to you now so that we can talk about it at the beginning of the episode. A lot of times with reviews, what I try to do is I try to front load the, that information on the on the beginning of the episode. I don't wait until the end of the episode and stash it at the very end. But um, I like to address these uh, as, you know, as directly as I can and, and uh, prioritize it at the front of the episode. So here we go. Quote, something that you said that caught my interest when I heard it, but can't find where you talked about it is when you said something along the lines that the Supreme Court was, is a mistake. Could you expand on that when it seems to fit your schedule, please? Thanks. Your obedient servant, Jared. End quote. And I included that part with the obedient servant on the end of there, um... Because I, I take that to really just be a shout-out to the Founding Fathers. Uh, you'll notice at the end of a lot of their letters, and the letter that I'm going to read to you on today's podcast, it ends the exact same way. I'll actually, I'll read it to you right now. I have it in front of me. And I'll, it's a letter from Josiah Quincy to Benjamin Franklin, and it, it goes a little something like this. Quote, Indeed, there is no injunction you can lay upon me that I would not cheerfully comply with, rather than be deprived of an entertaining and instructive epistle from you. As often as you can spare time to bestow such an inestimable favor upon your most obliged and obedient servant, Josiah Quincy, end quote. That's a, a very common ending. Benjamin Franklin uses it all the time. Josiah Quincy uses it here. You've seen it in many of the Founding Fathers' letters. So what's the story with that? You know, I, I, try, I try to find the origin of that, and I can't. It really is just something that shows up a lot in the letters in the 1700s. And eventually, of course, it, it ceases being used as a common conclusion to a letter. Um, so Jared was uh, giving a shout-out to Benjamin Franklin and the Founding Fathers there. Just so you understand why that's there. Some people may be new to the podcast and like, why in, why in the world would you include a closing like that? That's why. Founding Fathers did it a lot. And it's just kind of a, a tip of the hat to uh, each of the Founding Fathers as they closed out their letters uh, during this period of time. But the Supreme Court, yeah. So a question about the Supreme Court, and by the way, no, you don't have to conclude your reviews that way, in case you're curious, for me to uh, to read them. You can close out your letters any way you want, as long as it's appropriate. 
talking about the Supreme Court here, can I expand on the Supreme Court being a mistake or did I did I say that it was a mistake, et cetera, et cetera? The answer is, yeah, more or less I said that. I don't know. I can't remember the exact words I used on that episode, but I do remember saying it. That the Supreme Court, I, I believe I was trying to allude to the fact that the Supreme Court was ill-conceived. It was the least well-conceived of the three branches of government, the, the court system specifically, but definitely the Supreme Court was the least well-conceived part of the three branches of the United States government. The legislature being the most well-conceived, I think they got that thing down to a science for the most part, with, with a few exceptions. The executive branch, I think they got that down pretty good too. The only problem is, is they didn't put in... The, the Founding Fathers can only think so far ahead... And really, they can only they can they can look back in history and they can see how that office was manipulated in the past with other governments and others and other civilizations, like in Rome, for example. But they can't predict every single way that that is going to be manipulated. And of course, they they're operating under the assumption the Constitution is actually going to be followed. So the executive branch that we have today is really a manipulation, a, tw a Twilight Zone version of what the Founding Fathers were trying to create. But that's a story for another day, perhaps. But the Supreme Court is, in my humble opinion, a bit of a problem, mostly because it is, it was, um, it's kind of a halfway solution to a problem. And a halfway solution to a problem oftentimes is not at all a solution to a problem. So yes, I'm going to talk about this in the future. I actually had a conceptualized an episode that I wanted to do that's barking in that direction. And it's really going to be me postulating a few things and just thinking out loud about this problem and how it gets solved. And then, of course, once we get to talking about the Constitution, I will talk very directly about the Supreme Court. You know, it's supposed to serve a function. And again, it the problem, one of the pro I'll give you, I'll give you one of the problems right out of the gate. One of the problems with the Supreme Court is that it, it assumes that these people are going to be unbiased. That's the general assumption. A, a Supreme Court that would work on paper, the way it's written in the Constitution, would have to be unbiased. The problem with that is, is it'll never be unbiased because it's people. People have a very hard time being unbiased personally. I don't know exactly why. But th there are certain personalities that don't have really that big of a problem being unbiased, but they're very rare. You will almost never find them in society. It's almost impossible, especially around a seat of power. There's something, because remember the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That bias always seeps in through the cracks, and it, it because of the corruption of power, it just overwhelms the individual in many cases. There's some some exceptions to that, but by and large, almost everybody on the Supreme Court is at some point in time corrupted by bias or ambition or whatever the case may be. And ambition is really a bias towards the self. In other words, they they're biased towards their advancement, their position, their their ego, their perception in society, their popularity. They're being accepted by the people around them. And these people live and work around Washington, D.C. They probably live in northern Virginia, like so many politicians do. And they travel in the same circles. They meet with the same kind of people, the same attitude. You know, there there is no such thing as an America outside the Beltway. And that is to say the Beltway of Washington, D.C. That's, that's more or less what these people believe, by and large. How do you run a Supreme Court that way? I don't know. The answer, the, the answer is you really can't. It's a problem. And if it becomes too bad, if it becomes too biased, if it becomes too corrupted by all that, the Supreme Court ceases being an asset to the country and it becomes a cancer, just like any other corrupted institution. It's the same thing. 
Not to mention, you get these people on the Supreme Court, they don't want to leave. You ever notice that? A lot of them stay until they're basically dead. Now, in some cases, some of these people remain lucid all the way up until the time they die. And they're, they're technically fine. They're able to function and do their job. And there are other times when you can see quite clearly that these people are unable to exercise the duties of the office. But they're still there. And they're 80, 90 years old, or whatever it is, and they can't function. But they're still there. They refuse to leave. So who's really running the office? The law clerks? The people who run the office? I don't know who's running things, but it's not them. Is there somebody else behind the scenes that's running it? Is it a political party thing? Is the party running the office at that point? I mean, what is it? So you see that, too. It comes up every once in a while. I've seen it a couple of times, at least within my lifetime. Just, just my lifetime. I've seen it at least a few times. Is that a functioning Supreme Court? No, it's not. And the reason why those people stay in office so long, beyond the time which they can actually exercise the duties of the, of the office, is the same reason people stay in the legislature, in the general legislature, in Congress, beyond the time which they can exercise the duties of the office. And the answer is, it's that corruption, it's that bias, it's all these things. The Supreme Court is not immune to any of it, no matter which side you fall on. And it really is a divisive institution by its nature, because, you know, when the Supreme Court renders a decision that somebody agrees with, they love the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court renders a decision that they disagree with, it's abolish the Supreme Court, or, or change it fundamentally, because I disagree with this one decision. Change the court fundamentally. This is not a healthy thing for a country to go through. There's all kinds of problems with it, and did the Founding Fathers foresee some of this? I'm sure they probably did, on some level. But how do you fix that? There's really, uh, and I'm, I'm going to talk about actually how to fix it. I'm going to throw some ideas out there, and you got to understand, this episode that I'm going to do, it's probably going to be within the next ten episodes, so stay tuned. The, these thoughts that I'm going to throw out there are going to be extreme, in some cases, because this is a serious problem, it's causing serious problems for the country, and sometimes... There, you you have to you have to go to the extreme to try to find somewhere in the middle where you can actually solve the problem. And this is going to be a thinking discussion. It's going to be me thinking out loud, trying to field some thoughts about what it is you do to solve this kind of a problem because it's it's a big problem. And it's probably going to be a rather lengthy episode, by the way. So you're, I mean, the the TLDR crowd, it, you know, if they tried to listen to that entire episode from beginning to end, that that episode I'm going to make on that, it'd probably cause them to have a brain aneurysm. That would be a, an information overload session like no other, but uh, we're going to do it anyway because we don't give a crap about the TLDR crowd and their, their personal limitations. Uh, hopefully they overcome that at some point, uh, not just for their benefit, but for the benefit of the country. But uh, I am going to get to that. So uh, thank you, Jared, for, for number one, giving a shout out to the Founding Fathers with your closing there in true Benjamin Franklin and Josiah Quincy fashion, uh, but also the question about the um, Supreme Court and my comments contained uh, in an episode. I can't remember what episode that is either. Every once in a while, I'll be talking about something, and I'll just kind of throw something out there um, that I don't like. So who knows what episode that's in. But it's out there. And that's basically... I do that in part because, number one, there's all these uh, ideas just kind of bouncing around in my head when I'm talking about these letters from the Founding Fathers, but also as a kind of foreshadowing of things to come. Uh, I obviously knew from the very beginning of this podcast I was going to talk about the Supreme Court at some point, and so why not throw a few hints out there as to what we're going to talk about. So let's get into this letter that I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to read a letter written to Benjamin Franklin from Josiah Quincy. Uh, this was written on March the 25th of 1775. Apparently written from Braintree, Massachusetts. Anybody, uh, anybody, does that sound familiar? Who else writes out of Braintree every once in a while? That's where our good friend John Adams writes out of, right? Doesn't he operate out of Braintree, Massachusetts on occasion? Yes, he does. 
I mean, he, he's, he's like a rolling stone. He's all over the place. But uh, Braintree, big base of operations for John Adams. So let's get into this letter. We're going to read a, a healthy portion of this. I'll see how much of this I can get through. But I'm, I'm watching the clock on this episode. I usually don't until I get to like the one hour mark or the hour and a half mark. Because when I edit the episode, it usually, if it's an hour and a half long, I usually it usually comes down to about an hour 15 or something or an hour 10, somewhere in that. But I'm going to be watching the clock on this episode. When I reach a certain point, I'm going to have to cut this off because, like I said, scheduling issues. And I appreciate you bearing with me on that. So let's go. Uh, let's read this, and I quote, You would hardly be persuaded to believe, did not melancholy experience evince the truth of it, that such a number of infamous wretches could be found upon the continent, as are now grouped together in Boston under pretense of flying thither from the rage of popular fury, when everybody knows, and their own conscience cannot but dictate to them, that all they aim at is to recommend themselves to the first offices of trust and power, in case the plan of subverting and subverting the present constitution and establishing a despotic government in its stead can be successfully carried into execution, end quote. He's talking about these, quote, infamous wretches, end quote, being found on the continent. He's talking about the continent of North America. And they're grouping together in Boston. Why are they grouping together in Boston? Because that's where the military garrison is. That's where the military dictator has been placed. So why are these people gathering? To, why are these terrible people, as he describes them, why are they gathering together in Boston? Quote, All they aim at is to recommend themselves to the first offices of trust and power in case the plan of subverting the present constitution and establishing a despotic government in its stead can be successfully carried into execution. End quote. These are basically the kind of people that you find trying to place themselves around government for purposes of corruption, corrupt jobs, corrupt influence, etc. Now let me ask you a question. Washington, D.C., do you ever wonder why the lobbyists gather there? Do you ever wonder why so many other business interests gather around Washington, D.C.? Now the obvious answer is they're there to lobby Congress, okay. They're there to, you know, as I often like to say, the politicians are busy cashing checks and buying mansions, which is true in, in most of their cases, by the way. Not all of them, but most of them. Who's writing the checks? Well, it's these people. And are these the same kind of people that were gathering in Boston in 1775? Quote, That such a number of infamous wretches could be found upon the continent as are now grouped together, end quote. Instead of Boston, it's Washington, D.C. Is it the same thing, or is it something different? I mean, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you be the judge of that, because I'm really harsh on these people. I call them political prostitutes. Uh, this relationship between the, the politicians and the lobbyists and all the rest of it. And I think that's a very accurate term. Like I said, you know, if you try to get a meeting with your senator, your federal senator, good luck with that. But if you've got, if you're a lobbyist and you carry around a checkbook attached to a very large bank account and you like to write checks and they know it, the senator's office knows you like to write big checks, you can probably get a meeting with them in just a couple weeks at, at, at the longest. You might even be able to just walk into their office impromptu and get like a five-minute meeting with them on the fly. I've heard of stuff like that happening before. Does that sound like this kind of thing that was happening in Boston in 1775? Because it sounds similar to me. Now, why am I asking you this? Why am I pointing this out? And the answer is we have to learn from history, ladies and gentlemen. Oftentimes, I, and I've said it before, when, when I read these letters from Dr. Franklin, from General Washington, from John Adams, from Josiah Quincy, from William Tudor, it sounds like they're reading our mail. And that should frighten us because history repeats itself. I'm just putting it out there. Somebody has to. Nobody else is going to do this. Nobody else is going to ask the tough questions, most likely, on a podcast. I mean, there's probably people around the country asking the tough questions, but on a podcast, on, on like radio or something like that, they're not going to do it. 
you know, for any number of reasons. They're afraid of scaring off the TLDR crowd uh, or whatever. I, I don't know. But I, I don't worry about that. I have more respect for you people than that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think such so little of you that I will, uh, I will you know, try to walk on eggshells around these issues. Uh, I think we're all adults here, or at least we aspire to be adults. You know, if you're a young person between the ages of 15 and 18, I tend to, I tend to treat people like that who are trying to study this material, treat them as adults. Treat them the same as you would anybody else. Because that's how you that's how you grow intellectually as a human being. And also keep this in mind about the, uh, quote, number of infamous wretches could be found upon the continent, end quote. You know, and the reason why they're there, uh, quote, all they aim at is to recommend themselves to the first offices of trust and power, end quote. Remember, I, I said in a recent episode that these people who work in the elected, it's not just the lobbyists, but the staff in the elected representatives' offices. I believe I said something to the effect of these are some of the most despicable people on the planet. Or, well, not the planet, the country. The most despicable people in the country. And I often, I often wondered, why is it these people seem to find their way into these elected representatives' offices in a higher concentration than I find them anywhere else in the country? I've been all over this country, coast to coast, border to border, several times. I don't find anybody in such high concentration like these despicable people in Washington and the staff offices of the elected representatives in Washington, D.C. I don't find them anywhere. Not in that kind of concentration. I find them, but not that highly concentrated. Why? And what do you think they're doing in Washington, D.C.? Why? What do you think it is that attracts them to that job? What draws them there? This is something that you need to think about. If you agree with me that they are despicable. Now, you're taking my word for it. you got to understand, I don't make this stuff up. I say that after a sum total of... Probably a decade and a half, or nearly a decade and a half, of talking to those people on a fairly regular basis. I've been at this a long time, and I've met with these people in person. I remember, I, I've sat across the table from one of these people before, and I, I, after I got done talking to them and I left that office, I came away from it thinking to myself that these people, that person, that individual person, was pure evil. Just absolute evil. I don't get that feeling very often. And I talk to a lot of people. And there was one of these people I talked to over the phone... That was clearly a nefarious character. I mean, just has no business being anywhere near anything to do with elected representation in this country. They should be digging ditches somewhere at best. That's And that's it. Or exiled to a desert island. That's the only proper place for somebody like that in society. But there they are. They're in that office and they're working. And they're doing God knows what to God knows who. And for God knows what reason. And, all the, and I want you to think about that. Every single morning when you get up and you go to work in the morning. Or when your kids, you get your kids up in the morning, you send them off to school, and you go through your day, and you're trying to build a life for yourself. I want you to think about it. These people are in that office, hard at work, doing the despicable things that they do with that despicable attitude and personality that they have. The whole t Your whole life, the entire time you've been alive, this has been happening. They're hard at work up there, and probably undoing a lot of the things that you are trying to build for no other reason than they can. This is why you have to pay attention to this stuff. This is why Josiah Quincy was paying attention to it in Boston. He's not writing to Dr. Franklin about this because he's bored on a Tuesday afternoon, and he's just got nothing better to do with his time. He's trying to inform Dr. Franklin of something serious that's going on, just like I'm trying to inform you of something serious that's going on. I'm really just following Josiah Quincy's example here. Now, Josiah Quincy could have been wrong. He could have been wrong about the, quote, number of infamous wretches, end quote, and their intended purpose there in that in that colony, Massachusetts, and specifically in the city of Boston, just as I could be wrong about what's going on with those despicable, disgusting human beings in those offices that I talk to. I could be wrong about it. And yes, I have found some good ones. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I have, found, I have found a few good ones. There are some good people up there. I've talked to them. I can tell. But that ain't the majority that I've, that I've talked to. 
So you can't you can't wish this thing away. You can't say, oh, well, there's more good than bad. Uh-uh. Not in my opinion. Now, either I'm right or I'm wrong. And you can make a decision one way or the other, and then act accordingly. What does that mean? Pay very close attention to what these people do, and be very careful who you put in those offices. Be very careful. This is why I don't like this political party crap. It blinds people. You know, you put somebody in that office, and they, they talk the party line, and you think, oh, everything's fine. They're talking the party line. I, I, you know, they're, they're on my side of things, and they're, they're doing good things up there. Honestly, they're probably not. I don't care which side you're on. I don't give a crap. Doesn't matter. The only side I care about is the Constitution. The other sides don't give a crap. Because believe me, they're, they're biased, they're corrupted, they're all manner of things. They're, they're cashing checks and buying mansions. And these people who aggregate themselves in the staff offices of the elected representatives, they're just trying to get a piece. They're just trying to get a piece. And sometimes, you got I talk to some of these people sometimes and I wonder, what the heck are they doing there? Because they don't know what they're talking about. I talk to them on the other end of the phone, they don't know what's going on. They don't know what time of day it is. Not literally, but you get the idea. They don't know what time of day it is. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand what I'm talking about. What are they doing there? And is this a is this a family connection thing? Did did mommy and daddy know that know somebody in elected office and they they placed their kid there and that's how they got an internship or an office position or whatever? What the heck's going on up there? I can guarantee you, whatever is going on in those offices, it ain't good and it's not above board and there's nothing righteous about it. Just FYI, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, that's just my personal experience. Most people have not spent the amount of time, hundreds of hours, by the way, just in case you're curious. And I've got receipts, okay, hundreds of hours on the phone with these people, and in the offices talking to these people. Most people do not have this level of experience that I do with this. It's easy to it's easy to just say random crap about those people and never have been there, but I've been there. Not in Washington, D.C., but elsewhere. And like I said, I say, I say all this not to be super modern political, but so that we understand what Josiah Quincy's talking about, and we understand that this stuff doesn't end. I, I, you know, often t- I get so sick and tired of people in this country saying that uh, basically, living a life like history doesn't repeat itself. Like, these things can't happen again. We live in a different time. We live in a modern time. These people thought they lived in a modern time, too. Don't you think the people in the 18th century thought they were living in some modern time compared to, like, you know, the Roman Empire 2,000 years prior? Don't you think they believed they were living in a modern time? Of course they did. Don't you think some of these people thought they were past, you know, the Roman emperors taking over and subverting the Roman Republic and destroying it and condemning the, the people of Rome to some form of oppression and civil war, like, endlessly until the Roman Empire fell in the 500s AD and all the rest of it? Don't you think these people thought they were living in a modern time in 1775? Of course they did, just like we do today. Some of them probably thought they were they could escape this because it was just a, it was a different time. This is this is post Renaissance and this is this is post you know English Civil War. We're past all this stuff now. It's easy for people to make these same mistakes. So yes, Josiah Quincy is still relevant today, as much as Benjamin Franklin is still relevant today. We have to keep an eye on this. That's why we have to grab a hold of that Constitution with our two hands and not let go of it with our ninja grip. Hold tight to that Constitution, especially that Bill of Rights, that freedom of speech. Very important. Amongst other things, that ain't the only thing. There's a lot in there. So let us continue reading this letter. Quote, Some of them are already gratified with lucrative posts and pensions as a reward for prostituting their venal pens in defense of the arbitrary and violent measures of an abandoned administration, which doubtless stimulates the rest to exert their little abilities to affect the ruin of their country in hopes they may also have an opportunity to riot in the spoils of it. May that all-perfect being who governs the universe turn their counsels into foolishness and cause them to repent of their complicated crimes or to experience the fatal consequences of their wicked apostasy, end quote. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Founding Fathers have a way with words. So let's, uh, let's dissect this, shall we? A piece at a time. Quote, some of them are already gratified with lucrative posts and pensions. End quote. Haven't we talked about this before? Yes. So these tyrants, like King George III, the, the military dictator of Boston, of course they're going to try to reward the loyalists. Of course they are. Because this is what corrupt people do. While they're in the process of literally planning to go out and kill people with the military and to subvert their constitution, they're already subverting it. They've overthrown the constitution of Massachusetts. While they're doing that, they're going to try to buy off some people to make it look attractive to bend the knee and, and bow down to the seat of power, the king, the parliament, General Gage, the military, etc. And it's interesting his choice of words here. Quote, as a reward for prostituting their venal pens in defense of the arbitrary and violent measures of an abandoned administration, end quote. There's that word again, violent measures. We read in, in, in a previous episode recently from Benjamin Franklin about these violent measures. And it was a recent letter to this one here. It was just a few days before this one. I doubt seriously this guy got that, got that word violent measures from Benjamin Franklin. This seems to be a consistent theme amongst the Founding Fathers. They believed those intolerable acts to be violent. And when we're talking about a nation-state, and when we're talking about the military, violence oftentimes is an act of war. Is it not? I mean, most of us remember September 11th of 2001. I sure do. I don't know if I've ever told the story, certainly not on this podcast, but even on my other one when I was doing it, I don't think I ever told the story of, like, what my day was like on September 11th. Sometimes I think the younger people um, wouldn't mind hearing those stories. The, the folks who may not remember, who weren't, who were either too young or they weren't born yet, um, might enjoy hearing different stories about where where was I on on. So I, I always enjoyed hearing stories of you know where people were on like December seventh when they heard December seventh, nineteen forty one. That is my grand my grandparents would have been alive at that time, but maybe someday I'll, I'll tell that story. But we all remember that day. Those of us who were alive, obviously, and old enough to remember, that was violence. Was it not? It was. Some of the worst kind of violence. Was it an act of war? Somebody sure thought so. I mean, it, it precipitated a roughly 20-year-long military struggle on the other side of the planet. I would call that an act of war. And it was called such at the time by certain people. An act of war. Is this any different? Are these intolerable acts, these violent measures, are these any different than that? Now, you could say, well, they haven't killed anybody yet. They haven't sent the military out to kill anybody. Oh, but they're going to. They're going to get to that. Like I said, this is the, they're preparing for offensive military operations. They're building up a base from which to project power out from, and that would be Boston. I mean, the British military at the time was one of the best in the world. They know how to do this, just like we knew how to—I I, I drew the example of Desert Storm, you know, the way we did Desert Shield right before we did Desert Storm. And don't think I'm trying to equate the two. I'm not. This, these are two very different military operations. But the strategy was similar, which is the reason why I pointed out. The, you know, the United States military in 1990 and 1991 was, was not so arguably literally the best military on the planet, certainly logistically and as far as military planning goes. There's a reason why we did that buildup. And we had that, we had that basically fortified base of operations from which, from which we would project our offensive military operations. The British military, being one of the smartest and best in the world, is doing the exact same thing in 1775. They're gonna get to this. They're gonna get to fighting this war. But violent measures, ladies and gentlemen. But this, uh, this reference to prostituting their venal pens in defense of the arbitrary and violent measures, he's talking again about those wretches that are accumulating themselves in Boston prostituting themselves. What is it again that I call those people in Washington, D.C., political prostitutes? 
And by the way, when I had come up with that phrase, I came up with that phrase many, many years ago. I had never read this letter from Josiah Quincy, not not at that time. This is a relatively a new letter for me. Is it is it is it some coincidence that me and Josiah Quincy, two hundred and fifty years later, are basically barking down the same road? Is this a case of coincidence or I don't want to say great minds thinking alike. I don't I don't necessarily think myself to be on the level of these people. These people are far more advanced thinking than I am. But I, I think in some circumstances, when, when two people separated by 250 years see the same kind of thing happening, we arrive at the same conclusion. Just a thought, as far as the political prostitutes goes. The rest of it, you know, not maybe not as much, but the political prostitute portion of this, yeah. Now, how does he conclude this section? Quote, May that all-perfect being who governs the universe turn their counsels into foolishness and cause them to repent of their complicated crimes or experience the fatal consequences of their wicked apostasy, end quote. Who the heck is the all-perfect being who governs the universe? Well, that would be, from their perspective, that would be the Christian God, because that's who these people were. It's important to understand that. Like I said, you know, you want to understand the Founding Fathers. I said it about John Adams. It's really true about all, almost all of them. If you want to understand these people, you have to understand that they were religious people. That That drives right through the center of everything that they say, or almost everything they say. Almost everything they say, almost everything that they do, almost everything that they believe. You cannot understand the Founding Fathers without understanding that. You can't. You can try, but you can't. Doesn't mean you have to be Christian. You don't. You just have to understand who they were. And he talks about this apostasy. What is apostasy? Do you know what an apostate is? An apostate is a person, right? It's a description of a person. And it typically means the abandonment of some kind of a belief, usually a religious belief. So, like, if somebody is—let's use Christianity, for example. Let's say somebody's a Christian— and they, they're a Christian like their whole life or whatever, and then at some point they abandon it. Well, you could simply call them, and they say they say they don't believe in they don't believe in God or faith or anything anymore. You can simply call them a, an atheist at that point, but why would you call them an apostate? Typically an apostate, it implies not just abandoning it, but also working against it in, in some fashion, almost to ruin it, to destroy it. And he's describing these people as apostates. Apostates of what? Because it's not necessarily a religion that we're talking about here. They're talking about their constitutions. They're talking about their rights. And he's basically calling it wicked apostasy, is what he says. Quote-unquote, wicked apostasy. So these people have not just abandoned the Constitution. They are working to destroy it, to ruin it. Interesting. Now let us continue on. Quote, The newspapers will discover to you the shameful artifices they have been practicing to flatter the hopes and alarm the fears of their fellow citizens, and thereby not only to disunite and divide, but discourage them from pursuing those measures which the wisdom of the continent has devised and recommended as most salutary, salutary and effectual for our preservation and security, end quote. There's one line in here that I, I noticed that uh, stuck out at me, and it goes a little something like this, quote, The newspapers will discover to you the shameful artifices they have been practicing to flatter the hopes and alarm the fears of their fellow citizens, end quote. And I guess I should read this next section because it's so important. Quote, And thereby not only to disunite and divide, but discourage them from pursuing those measures which the wisdom of the continent has devised and recommended, end quote. So hopes and fears disunite and divide. Does this sound familiar? We read this on a letter in a previous episode from Dr. Franklin to a Humphrey Marshall written on March the 13th of 1775, quote, The controversy will soon end in our favor, notwithstanding the present measures, if America is steady 
in the non-consumption agreement, all the hopes and dependence of the ministry are dividing us by working upon our fears and hopes, end quote. Dividing us by working upon our fears and hopes. This was written to Humphrey Marshall on the 13th of March of 1775. We have a letter from Josiah Quincy back to Benjamin Franklin on March the 25th of 1775 saying, talking about hopes and fears and disunite and dividing. Are you seeing a common theme here from multiple sources talking back at each other, basically about the same kind of stuff? And it's, the, it's hopes and fears. Some people think, and again, I brought this up at the time on that episode about Benjamin Franklin's letter. You know, the old man used to say, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But he also, they, they, these two men have both put hope in the same category as fear when it comes to disuniting and dividing people. It is very easy for a politician or a despot or a tyrant to leverage hope to disunite and divide people. And usually hope quickly turns into fear. This was used to great effect in Germany in the 1930s. People, people focus on the fear that was talked about at the time, the institution of fear. But they forget that it also started out as an institution of hope. Germany was in dire straits at the time. And there was some hope offered up by that lunatic, which quickly turned into fear. Politicians are expert at leveraging these two things together. And the reason why I point this out is because some people, they, they, they focus on the fear thing, the fear mongering and the, the fear this and the fear that, but they don't look at the hope that these people talk about and, and think to themselves they could be using this against us as well. They could take hope, leverage it against us to get what they want. You have to keep that in mind because both Benjamin Franklin and Josiah Quincy are telling you to pay attention to this. I'm just pointing it out. It's not my message. It's theirs. Now let us continue. Quote, but happily for our dear native country, Providence has been graciously pleased to raise up such powerful advocates in defense of our claim to be exempted from parliamentary legislation by arguments drawn from those fundamental principles of natural and civil law, which form the basis of the English Constitution, as must be sufficient to inform the most ignorant and convince the most obstinate of the justness of our claim and therefore cannot be invalidated by the futile productions of those mercenary scribblers that have appeared in opposition to it, end quote. Mercenary scribblers. What is a mercenary, by the way? Let's break this down. A mercenary is like a hired gun, a soldier of fortune, somebody who gets paid to go to war to perform some particular offensive action, perhaps. And yes, writing can be offensive. You know, it can be, it can be a part of a, part of a, almost a, almost combat in some ways. And mercenary scribblers, so he's, scribblers is a writer. Think, think, um, somebody writing articles in a newspaper at the time, or a pamphlet. Mercenary scribblers. Interesting. Quote, by the futile productions of those mercenary scribblers that have appeared in opposition to it, end quote. Opposition to what? Quote, the English Constitution, end quote. So they're writing in opposition to the English Constitution. Okay. Now, just out of curiosity, let me, let me float this one for you. When somebody in the news media, who is against freedom of speech, or maybe they're against the Second Amendment. When somebody in the news media who's getting paid to do what they do, which effectively makes them potentially, not not always, but potentially a mercenary, because again, soldier of fortune getting paid, a uh, mercenary scribbler, d are they the same thing as what Josiah Quincy's talking about here? Because they're writing against the American Constitution, just as these people were writing against the English Constitution. Does the news media have a hand to play in all this? I mean, Josiah Quincy certainly says they do. In 1775... But do they have a role to play in this today, 250 years later? In other words, 
as much as people think things change over time, things really just stay the same, don't they? Seriously. I mean, so the next time you watch the news, have this thought of mercenary scribblers in the back of your mind and, and really look through that lens and think to yourself, what are these people up to really? Just a thought. Again, you know, these are the, these are the, these are the things, these are the magical little moments from the founding fathers that I point out that nobody else will, you know, no extra charge for that. But he talks about the opposite side too. He talks about the, the, the people who are doing the opposite of the mercenary scribblers, the people who are actually defending the Constitution, quote, happily, for our dear native country, Providence has been graciously pleased to raise up such powerful advocates in defense of our claim to be exempted from parliamentary legislation, end quote. So they believe, again, they should be exempted from parliamentary legislation. Why? Because they have no representation there. They want to be represented in their local legislatures, in Massachusetts, in Virginia, and elsewhere. And rightfully so. We should all hope to be more accurately represented in our, in our local legislatures, not a distant legislature, the local legislature. It's always the same thing with these people. Local, 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 closer to the people. Imagine that. Imagine the founding fathers, the, the, the source of freedom and liberty for our, our country here today. They wanted government local. Well, that is gonna, that's probably going to reach us towards the end of this particular podcast. I've got to cut this one a little bit shorter than usual. You get the idea. This is a good view. For, Josiah Quincy has opened a window for us, for us to look back through his perspective in 1775 and see what was going on in and around Boston. Because keep in mind, this guy's in Braintree, Massachusetts, which isn't far from Boston. This guy's got a front row seat to everything that was happening in Boston at this time. This is a unique perspective. It's a great perspective. We need to have this. We need to hear from people who were who were standing right outside of Boston, looking into the city with their two eyes and telling us what happened. That's why I say things like, you know, we're going live to 1775 with Josiah Quincy, and he's going to be reporting to us as to what's going on. I say that because it's very accurate. This is like Josiah Quincy reporting for us, for our benefit, what was going on at the time. And it's important that we learn the lessons. We understand what he saw so that if we start seeing the same kinds of things, we know, okay, something's going wrong here. Let's correct. Let's let's adjust. Let's kind of walk down a little bit of a different path, perhaps, and, and away from this thing that Josiah Quincy was describing and back towards what the Founding Fathers were trying to get to. Okay, Josiah Quincy's describing a terrible situation going on in Boston. And clearly the Founding Fathers are trying to work towards a, a better a better opportunity for them to be represented locally and to maintain their local constitutions, Massachusetts, their, their colonial charters and whatnot. Because over time, I mean, this guy talks about the British Constitution, which you'd think everybody would understand and everybody would be fine with. But over time, these things just get forgotten. They, the, the importance of them gets forgotten. I think a lot of times these people, these mercenary scribblers in 1775, some of these people probably were not evil people. They were just sorely misguided because like us, that is to say America in the 21st century, they have forgotten just how important it is to maintain adherence to the structure that, that was put together here. They don't understand how delicate this is, how valuable this is. So they think they can play with it. They think they can manipulate it, and everything's going to be fine. Well, everything's not going to be fine, and we have to understand that. So when we start talking about manipulating the Constitution, we start manipulating the Declaration of Independence, we start manipulating the Bill of Rights, everything's going to be fine. Everything's not going to be fine. It's not. So if Josiah Quincy were around, I would certainly thank him for, for reporting from Massachusetts live from 1775 for us so that we can understand what was going on. 
And we've gotten we've gotten a few of these letters, you know, from William Tudor, Josiah Quincy, that really report on just what was going on on the ground in 1775. And, you know, we've heard about the troop movements and everything else, but we hadn't heard a lot about these, you know, these lobbyist type apparatchiks that are that are gathering in Boston to try to maintain some proximity to the seat of power so that they can ma- so that they could get, you know, pensions and posts, lucrative posts is what he calls it, quote unquote, lucrative posts and pensions. Hadn't heard a lot about these people, so I wanted to bring Josiah Quincy on the podcast to tell us exactly what the story was with these folks. So not only do we have soldiers in Boston getting ready to carry out offensive operations, we've got the usual civilian-type apparatchiks, that is to say, you know, political party types that are just, you know, dedicated to whatever corruption it is the king wants to do on any given day, just for their own personal advancement and their own career, their own, their own bank accounts. It's a sad commentary when people will sell out their countrymen for a dollar. It really is sad, but it happens, and it happened in 1775, according to Josiah Quincy. That's not me saying that. That's Josiah Quincy saying that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. I hope you found Mr. Quincy's report from 1775 to be of some value as far as adding to the perspective of what was going on in Boston at the time, and also things that we need to pay attention to as Americans in 2023 and beyond. And not only that, those folks who listen to this podcast overseas, what do you need to be paying attention to? Do you see anything like that going on in your country? Do you see problems with this? Of course, depending on what country you you fall into, there's definitely going to be people who do. And I think those people like John Adams who were writing in furtherance of liberty, the people in the Continental Congress who were trying to write petitions to the king— and trying to seek some kind of restoration of their rights and their liberties. These were all great efforts on the part of the Founding Fathers. They were really fantastic in that respect. They were were 100% dedicated to joining together in the Continental Congress and around the colonies and advocating for their rights and their liberties without fail. And thank goodness for them, because without them, we wouldn't have our rights today. They weren't just advocating for themselves. They were advocating for us, you and me. And not only that, for 330 million other people, and all of the people who lived between 250 years ago and today in this country. There aren't many people in the history of the world who can say, who could say, that they were responsible for being successful, for the most part, of establishing liberty and freedom, and a good solid constitution, and a bill of rights, for that matter, for hundreds of millions of people across 250 years. But the Founding Fathers can say that, if they were here. And since they're not here to say it, I'll say it for them. That's, that's what I do. So I hope I'll see you all here on the next episode of the podcast. And thank you so very much for joining me on this episode and joining me in listening to the message that we had from the Founding Fathers today. And we will continue. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing out. Thank you. <laughs>